It has been two weeks now since Virginia declared a state of emergency to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic. The count in Virginia went up again today. There are 460 confirmed cases in Virginia, up from 391 the day before. There have been 65 hospitalizations and 13 deaths. Those numbers are going to grow, and we're going to have to prepare for tough days ahead as we get used to the many sudden changes that are affecting so many's lives, everybody's lives. My name's Amanda, and I was laid off the day the government shut down because of the coronavirus. And I was laid off because of the coronavirus and the way it had affected my job's business. We'll hear more from Amanda later on in the program. Today's installment features Charlottesville City Council taking action on continuing the government. Governor Ralph Northam's comments on Virginia's readiness to deal with an influx of patients. And we'll check in with the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank, which has a crisis on its hands. The pantries are staffed almost entirely by volunteers, most of them in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. The very people that our charitable food assistance system relies on are being told to stay home because they're at higher risk. I'm Sean Tubbs, and it's March 26th. As reported yesterday, local government meetings are beginning to resume. Charlottesville City Council met with four members present in City Council chambers on March 25th, with one member absent. Vice Mayor McGill, are you there? I am. And City Attorney John Blair went through a series of questions with Cena McGill. And are you currently in your residence in the city of Charlottesville, Virginia? I am. I haven't left in a long time. Ah, I'm so sorry to hear that. This is now the second time that council has met since the emergency, but not all staff was there. Mayor Nakaya Walker addressed the city council clerk on the phone. Uh, Ms. Thomas, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes. Could you do roll okay. call, please? Mr. Payne? Here. Since Virginia Attorney General Mark Herring issued opinion on March 20th about the ability of local governments to meet electronically during this emergency, they have slowly been figuring out the next steps. The only business on Council's agenda was to adopt a continuity of government ordinance that will allow them to meet remotely via electronic means. Here's City Attorney John Blair. It seems to be a consensus of Council that, that councilors would prefer whatever legal means are necessary to allow you to all participate electronically um, until this COVID-19 issue, um, until there's some uh, mitigation of that in the community that would make it safe for people to gather. Now, before the COVID-19 emergency, the idea of public bodies meeting remotely raised many questions about public access and transparency. And those questions are still ones worth raising as this crisis forces public business into the digital platforms that are becoming so much part of our life as 2020 continues. But what does that mean for the Freedom of Information Act and open meetings rules? The Freedom of Information Act <clears throat> requires the council to have what's called an open meeting. And, and it also requires a physical quorum of the council. And traditionally, per FOIA, Obviously, three people of the five members of council need to be here for a physical quorum. And also, the doors have to be open to allow the public to participate and see the workings of government. For many years, my job has been to try to help citizens make sense of what their local government does. 
And now, I'm documenting as much of this new era as I can. It's not safe for elected officials to meet in public at the moment, but yet bodies will have to meet to continue carrying on business. The ruling from Attorney General Herring opens up the door to some remote meetings, but there are limitations. Most government business is on hold. Any agenda items um, that are scheduled uh, for the council, the planning commission, any city board commission or authority are deemed continued for the duration of Dr. Richardson's local emergency declaration. That means that any deadlines for action that city government had to make are delayed until after this is all over. However, boards and commissions can meet electronically during this period, as long as there are no votes. But there has to be some way for the public to participate. Obviously, everyone wishes we could have our council chambers open and the usual public participation, but I know Mr. Wheeler with this webinar and other means, including the Facebook broadcast, we're trying our best to maximize public participation when there are going to be these meetings like today and electronic meetings. Blair said that if public hearings have to occur during this period, the city will try to find a way to get public input, including the submission of written comments. So far, none of those are scheduled, so we can figure that out as we go. I'll keep trying to make sure you know what opportunities you have for public comments are. After all, it's March 26th, and things are changing day by day. After City Council adopted the continuity ordinance, they took comment from the remote public. The first person to speak is someone you'll hear on tomorrow's show. Matt Lawless, you are on with City Council. You have three minutes. Uh, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Matt Lawless, calling from the town of Scottsville. I serve as town administrator here. I um, want to commend you for your leadership on this issue. It's been complicated through our region. Uh, Scottsville Town Council is undertaking the same matter tomorrow with a similar ordinance. And um, it's encouraging to see you guys leading on this. And we'll do the best we can to help out through the region. Thank you. Thank you. Scottsville Town Council meets later on today. Of course. Can you hear me? Later in the day, yesterday, after Council's meeting, a somewhat obscure body known as the Metropolitan Planning Organization met. They consist of Albemarle, Charlottesville, and state officials, and the topic is transportation. The audio wasn't working on their Zoom recording, so we all had to call in. This two-hour meeting seemed like any other MPO meeting, except having it online instead of in a crowded room. One of the topics covered was public transportation. One of the things we've done with COVID-19 is try to limit the exposure for our drivers. That's Garland Williams, the director of Charlottesville Area Transit. He said 17 drivers are currently not working because they are high risk for COVID-19. Passengers now enter through the rear door and the buses are fare-free. Um, we actually put up caution tape um, to prevent them from getting closer to the drivers. Uh, that went into effect last week. Uh, we actually cut service on Sundays to allow us to do more cleaning, which is a requirement now. Aside from Sunday, Williams said no other service has been officially cut, but the lack of drivers is meaning that some trips aren't being made. That prompted a question from Albemarle Supervisor Ann Malik. One question on that, have you had any, are you still able to get employees to the hospital of Santera for the 11 o'clock shift change or have those bus runs been cut? 
We haven't heard anything. So we, we actually have not heard anyone um, complain about our service changes at, at we've cut service off at nine. Um, we haven't heard any complaints at whatsoever. Very good. I hope they're getting there. Thank you. <laughs> Brad Sheffield is the executive director of Jaunt, which has also seen ridership declines. Uh, this is Brad. So, um, um, but our, our ridership has declined, of course, um, focusing on more or less the ADA ridership. We're down now. Ridership has dropped about 65%, um, looking at the latest numbers that we have. The calls that are coming in for trips, we are screening them to make sure that people are taking only necessary essential trips and um, trying to work with them if uh, there seems to be some sort of disagreement, but mainly to try to discourage anybody from taking unnecessary uh, trips has, has been the focus of reservations. Two weeks into the emergency, and we've seen big changes. This time is one to reflect on how local government does its work and how it could potentially do it better in the future. Well, these are all examples of things that we will continue to do better in the future, even after the crisis is over, because we're learning so much about how we can improve our operations. In a minute, we're going to hear from Governor Northam with some preparation news. But first, I wanted to check in with Charles Owens, a musician friend of mine who took to Facebook Live last night to share his art with people. Charles usually plays every night somewhere on the downtown mall in Charlottesville, but now he can't. None of us can go out right now, and we shouldn't go out right now. But there's also something there to remind us of the times we've had and to help us look forward to the times to come. For now, Charles and others are out there to remind us of our shared humanity. Such a beautiful tune. Burt Bacharach, one of my faves. So many great tunes by Burt. Keep supporting your artists. Keep supporting people that um, work in restaurants. Um, check in with those people. They're really hurting right now. Um, and if you want to support me, um, you can go to charlesowens.bandcamp.com and, pur and purchase some of my music. Also, you can hit me up here on Facebook or Instagram, and we can do an online lesson if you have any kind of curiosity about saxophone, piano, theory, harmony. Um, I'd certainly love to um, teach lessons, and I have some spots open, um, and uh, it's been great. Uh, I have a lot of infrastructure here to make sure that we can be getting a lot of stuff done in our lessons. So This crisis is making so many of us think so different about what our lives were and what they're going to be. Before we get on with the show and get to Governor Northam, let's hear from a friend of mine who I saw every day, every day before all of this happened. She sent in this recording to me yesterday. My name's Amanda, and I was laid off the day the government shut down because of the coronavirus. And I was laid off because of the coronavirus and the way it had affected my job's business. And I remember in the moment that I was told I was going to be laid off and to go file for unemployment that 
I had sacrificed so much time with my family in the four and a half years that I had worked there because I really felt like that that job was so important and that it was meaningful for me to sacrifice those things to keep that job and that it was so worthwhile and that it was just gone now and it was devastating and then the next day the schools were all canceled and all the daycares were canceled and we're now faced with this reality just a few short weeks later that um the whole school year is canceled and I have a fifth grader and he won't be able to have as silly as some people might seem a fifth grade graduation which is something he was looking forward to and it's at this point just going to be based off of well he mostly passed fifth grade so he can go to sixth grade and he in his own head just says well that's not fair to him he says should I go to sixth grade and now now we're just trying to make it through homeschooling and just applying for jobs but the only jobs I'm applying for are at nighttime because there's no childcare and this is the new reality is keep working but only work for places that are essential work for food service that's open 24 hours a day and only work at nighttime because you are childcare during the daytime and I don't know how much longer this is going to go on None of us do, but we know that a return to normal isn't coming anytime soon. If you want to send in something, news, a reflection, music, anything, send a recording on your phone to wordcast at gmail.com, and I'll try to get it into a future show. The sacrifices that so many are making is intended to save lives. The worst of this is coming. At his briefing on March 25th, Governor Northam said what we've been expecting— COVID-19 cases are continuing to rise. Keep in mind, this audio is actually a day old and is not reflecting the numbers we heard at the beginning of the show. Since yesterday, we have seen an increase in COVID cases as well as additional deaths. We are just at the beginning of this. We are not at the middle. As I have said, we're not talking about weeks. Unfortunately, we are talking about months. And we are going to see these numbers, unfortunately, continue to rise. Northam said the state is continuing to work to make sure the capacity of the medical system is in place to meet the upcoming needs. Northam is a doctor himself and said the public needs to understand just how the system could get overwhelmed, will get overwhelmed. Let's listen to what the ideal setup would be for someone who needs intensive care in normal times. For those of you that may not be familiar with an ICU setting, an ICU patient during a normal time would be cared for by a number of staff providers, which includes nurses, an attending physician, three to five consulting physicians in the case of COVID 
19, a cardiologist, a pulmonologist, and an infectious disease specialist, a respiratory therapist, a pharmacist who's part of the team, an IV technician who takes care of vascular access, and then a radiology technician who would come into the room and, and take x-rays of the patient. So you can easily see uh, that you could have up to 10 or even more healthcare providers taking care of each individual patient. But if there are too many patients, and if the nurses and doctors and other medical workers get sick themselves, then you can begin to see how an abundance of cases will hurt the ability to give care. And we've seen this now in other places where the COVID-19 pandemic has already broken out. As the predicted increase approaches, Northam said Virginia is exploring new options. We are exploring ways to make it easier for qualified medical professionals to help out. This includes reworking our licensing procedures and considering use of medical students and others. We also will be making better use of our Virginia Medical Reserve Corps. The VMCR is a force of dedicated volunteers who stand ready to support the community in the event of a public health emergency such as this. We have more than 8,000 deployable volunteers and more than 1,500 volunteers just in the past month. We are going to get to a point where our hospitals in Virginia are overloaded and the state appears to be trying to prepare. Drawing again upon his background as a physician, Northam again explained how the increased number of cases will affect care. To put our equipment needs in perspective, in normal times, each one of the providers I listed, each one of those 10 providers uses a, a new mask, a new gown, and gloves each time they go into a room to see a patient. 10 care providers, as I previously outlined, providing 24-hour care gets you to about 240 items of PPE in a day per patient. Now, if you multiply that by a hospital that, let's say, has 40 ICU patients, you're at 10,000 PPE items in a day per hospital. I'm going to keep looking into this issue of PPE and how we can find ways to protect our medical workers. In the meantime, it's important to do what we can to limit the spread and to try while we're at home to find ways we can all be helpful. On March 25th, Northam expressed concern that the federal government needs to step in to help. Because states are literally competing for supplies, the prices that we are seeing from some private vendors has jumped. That is why we need a nationally-led response. Allowing the free market to determine availability and pricing is not the way we should be dealing with this national crisis at this time. Does Virginia have enough capacity to handle a sudden influx of patients? Northam and the leaders of D.C. and Maryland are in contact with the Army Corps of Engineers. The Corps can build emergency hospital bed capacity in sites that we identify for them. We are working to assess several potential locations in regions across Virginia should, should the need arise. And, and so uh, with the help of our Secretary of Veterans Affairs, Carlos Hopkins, we have been in touch and communication with the Corps of Engineers, and we are actively looking at sites uh, in different regions around Virginia so that we can increase the capacity 
for bed space if we need to. And, and I would also say that uh, when we increase capacity for bed space, we also need increased capacity for equipment, which I outlined, and also for staff. And so we're working on all of that together. It appears that work is being done to take care of the coming medical catastrophe. If, you, if one looks at the curves of the hospitalizations that we're seeing, of the increased cases that we're seeing, uh, not only here in Virginia, but in other areas of, of uh, the country, uh, we anticipate uh, overburdening the capacity of our current health care system. And so, so we see that coming. We want to prepare for that. Please understand that there are multiple crises going on all at once. There is a need for people to think about volunteering and what they can do to help. Please visit supportseville.com to learn more about how you can get involved. One possible way is to volunteer for the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank. Here's CEO Michael McKee. The Blue Ridge Area Food Bank, on average, provides enough food for about 2 million meals to 100,000 people every month. We do this through a network of food pantries, soup kitchens and shelters, mostly food pantries, across 25 counties in central and western Virginia. What's important to understand is that the pantries are staffed almost entirely by volunteers, most of them in their 60s, 70s, and 80s. And so the pandemic represents a perfect storm. The very people that our charitable food assistance system relies on are being told to stay home because they're at higher risk for the most severe consequences of COVID-19. So the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank is really leaning into this by helping our pantries first and foremost stay open. These are really wonderful, big-hearted people who are doing everything they can to keep their doors open in local communities across 25 counties uh, and, and make sure that they're there for people who need them. But the pantries are largely having to operate differently. So typically you might see a pantry that packs food into bags and boxes and hands those out in a building, a church basement or a freestanding building. Or increasingly, they're bringing folks inside to actually shop smaller than a, a supermarket, obviously, but choose items that are in the pantry. And what we've done with them is instead for the food bank, the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank, to purchase pre-packed food boxes that they can distribute more easily, often through a drive-through format. So it reduces the demand on agencies or on the, the food pantries. They're, they can operate and distribute food with far fewer volunteers, and they can still provide food to people who need it in those local communities. So we just last week purchased about $153,000 worth of uh, pre-packed food boxes. We're increasing our, our food purchasing budgets. All of this food is going out free to our, our partner agencies, the local pantries uh, throughout the region. And that's just one way that we're helping. So I think the message to the public is that um, these pantries need younger, healthy volunteers. Uh, we are creating at the food bank and at our local pantries social distancing protocols and intensified hygiene and sanitation protocols to create safe places to volunteer. And so your help is needed. Uh, people can go to the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank website, click on uh, Get Involved, 
and then you can sign up to volunteer at one of our locations. Um, but you can also click on the tab that says Find Help and use our pantry locator. It's a map-based tool. Enter your zip code and you can find food pantries near you. Call them up and see if they need an extra pair of hands. That's Michael McKee, CEO of the Blue Ridge Area Food Bank. Thanks again to Charles Owens for his permission to use a little bit of audio from his Facebook Live performance last night. Currently, you're listening to one of his performances. You can find out information on his work, as well as the Blue Ridge Food Bank, in the show notes today. And that's it for today's installment. We'll be back by Saturday morning with another installment, though if news breaks, I'll bring something faster. As I said at the beginning, this podcast will continue to change as needed. Thank you for listening. Please share this with anybody you think might want to hear it and continue to stay home. I'm Sean Tubbs.